And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Thursday, August 3rd. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law on this episode. We'll take a look back at some of the more intriguing moves made in the trade deadline window. Keith had a great piece that went up on the Athletic under the radar MLB trades worth noticing from the Marlins, Padres, Phillies, and more. And that's exactly where I wanted to start because of the Marlins, Keith. I think the Marlins were a team that did a lot to get a bit better. And the most surprising trade, perhaps, of the entire trade deadline window is one in which they acquired Jake Berger from the White Sox. Jake Eater goes back the other way. Interesting pitcher working his way back from Tommy John surgery. But I think the question comes back to Berger's ceiling. Given the time he missed with multiple significant injuries, he's a little old for a player with very little big league experience. He's showing a ton of power, but he's showing a lot of swing and miss. Is there still reason to believe he could get better and reduce some of that swing and miss and actually be a multi-year solution at third base or maybe at first base with a position switch for the Marlins? I doubt it. Never say never, but yes, he is older. He's also, you know, he missed a ton of time with multiple knee injuries, was basically out other than playing a little bit in 2017. He missed 18, 19, and then the pandemic year in 20. And then he still missed some time. I just pulled it up here. Played 97 total games in 21. uh, About the same amount, the the 90 games the following year. He's at up to 93 this year. Um, And we're not seeing a ton of progression in the skill set. And there was always a question, even back when he was first drafted, was this guy more power than hit? And was he going to end up at first base? And I think that's what we've got. It's enough power to play. Despite a horrendous on-base percentage, he's hitting for so much power. Um, God, his isolated power is 313, which is kind of comical. Um, But he's so undisciplined. I uh, despair to think he's ever going to have even a 300 on-base percentage, given a large enough sample, and he's got to go to first base. And at first base, you know, the defense may not hurt them so much, but the position of value works against them. So in terms of addressing, for the Marlins, addressing the third base problem for the rest of this year, yes, he's actually better than what they've been running out there, and they couldn't ship Gene Segura out fast enough after making this trade. However, I do not think Berger is a long-term solution for them. And if the pitching prospect they gave up, Jake Eater, recovers all of the velocity that he had before Tommy John surgery, which he has not shown so far this year in a handful of starts, uh, then this deal could look really bad for the Marlins. I think what we're seeing from Berger so far is the lower end range of outcomes with the average and OBP, even with the swing and miss, like even if he doesn't get better, 
he's been unlucky on balls in play. Like I know the type of player he is. He's not going to run a crazy high Babbitt, but he hits the ball hard enough where a 225 average on balls in play is not what I would project him for. So if you want to give him like a 260, 270 on balls in play, it bumps the average, the OBP up to more tolerable levels. You'll see projections at like 249, 309, 497. That's a reasonable expectation for him going forward. And it's a Marlins lineup that needed pop. So I, I think it... It does make them better, as you said. Now, they added Josh Bell in that trade. So they get rid of Gene Segura. They take on Josh Bell. Josh Bell has a player option that most people assume he will just pick up because he probably won't be able to exceed the value of that player option in free agency unless he goes red hot for the final two months and gets a chance to go back into free agency with much better numbers than he has right now. But you think about Bell, Berger, the David Robertson addition, and think about the players they gave up. Do you feel good about the overall adjustments the Marlins made in their effort to get to the postseason this year? Yeah, generally, I think they did a good job of sort of trying to patch around the edges. They had a couple of pretty clear, I think, relatively easy to address needs, especially in the infield at third and at first where they had signed some pretty over the hill players in Skura and Yuli Gurriel, who kind of got worse, right? They just were getting nothing out of either of those positions and even modest upgrades, uh, even sort of so-so players at those positions, not even the most productive or close to the most productive at their positions, still represent real upgrades for the Marlins and improve their odds of getting to the postseason. And they gave up some prospects, but not their nobody elite. I mean, Eater is probably the best of them, but he's got question marks. Khalil Watson went to Cleveland in the Josh Bell trade, former first round pick who's been a huge disappointment so far. They gave up a couple of teenagers to the Mets, either of whom could turn into something pretty good, but they're also years away. I also just look at this as a recognition from the Marlins front office. Like, hey, we're not actually this good, right? They've kind of played a little over their heads, um, at least the first three months of the season. Now, July has seen them a bit come crashing back to earth. And if they're going to even just maintain a chance to get into the postseason, they were going to have to make some pretty significant adjustments to the roster. And I think they did that. Rather than making one big splash, they made several small ones that add up to the probably the same amount uh, of, of increased value that they would have gotten if they'd made one large acquisition. You mentioned Khalil Watson. He ended up in Cleveland as part of that Bell-Segura swap. And the strikeout rates down this year, the alarming part of the profile for Khalil Watson last year was at low A, a 35.5% K rate. It's a short yeah. list of players that strike out that much in the lower levels, regardless of age, who go on to become impact big leaguers. He's down to 28% at high A this year. The slash line's still ugly. Uh, there's tons of speed. It's a little bit of power still in there, and there's probably more power on the way. Do you like Watson as sort of a, a longer term buy low for Cleveland? Or do you think given the Guardians difficulty developing hitters in recent years, this could end up being a really difficult spot for Watson to make the adjustments he needs to make as he progresses through their system? I don't mind him as a buy low candidate here. The odds are really against him. And it's there's going to have to be just a complete overhaul. And you know he was suspended once publicly for making a threatening gesture towards an umpire a year ago. I have heard there have been minor disciplinary issues where he may have been benched here or there for certain things, and just generally that he's not worked well with the Marlins coaching staff. So now it's change of scenery, different people, different coaching staff. You always hope for a player like that who is very talented. There's a little bit of a wake-up call. You are going to have to change some way, the way you go about your business if you want to get to the big leagues. Uh, 
I think Cleveland can point to those things and say there are still some things Watson does do very well. That's a foundation for future growth and future success. If he takes hold of this opportunity and you know, you don't get Khalil Watson for Josh Bell in a normal, in normal circumstances. If Watson had had the two years that I think the Marlins expected that a lot of folks expected when he was coming out of high school. Yeah. This is just unthinkable. So for Cleveland, I think it, Makes a ton of sense, especially because Bell wasn't having a great year. The, another guy who was un, has been unlucky by uh, by his batted ball data. You're not getting much in return for Bell. So to get a, you know, a, I don't use this word lightly, but a disgraced prospect who is still young enough that he could turn his career around, and who does still have the physical gifts that made him a first round pick. Yeah, I'm I'm on board with that, and I think it's a a shrewd move by Cleveland, even if we all acknowledge it's a low probability of success but it's worth trying. Now, as we record this on Wednesday afternoon, entering play for the day, the Guardians have a 19.9% chance of making the playoffs. According to Fangraphs, they're only two games behind the Twins in the AL Central. So that number seems a, a tick low, but then you look at the roster, you look at how they decided to handle the deadline, giving more current talent away and looking a little more to the future. It's really difficult to kind of talk yourself into this team taking a step forward and and being dangerous in the postseason, even if they do get there, right? Even if the Guardians win the yeah. AL Central, you look at their lineup and you say, how are they going to hit playoff caliber pitching with this lineup? The biggest well, trade they, they made. Night. Yeah, I mean, they got no hit by Framber Valdez. <laughs> and, On 93 pitches. Yeah, didn't, didn't even make them work that hard for it either. Right? Yeah. Astros are trying to only pay him 50%. You only, you only worked a half day. What are we going to do? Right? You don't, you don't get full sell. I'm kidding. I'm just kidding, obviously. The Guardians traded Aaron Savali at a time when Shane Bieber was recently placed on the 60-day IL, and they may have done well in this trade, depending on your evaluation of Kyle Manzardo. I think there are some varying opinions on how much he's going to hit in the big leagues. Manzardo's having a down year at AAA this year. He has hit everywhere else he has played, and Given the need at first base, especially since we learned they later moved Josh Bell, this could be an easier path to Manzardo getting up to the big leagues and just having a spot to call his own than he would mm-hmm. have had in Tampa Bay, where they've got a little more crowding on that depth chart. So I do wonder if we'll actually see Manzardo before the end of this season, because as it stands today, they've got a backup catcher and David Fry getting opportunities at first base. They've got Gabriel Mm -hmm. Arias. They just brought up Brian Rocchio to play shortstop. It's the usual cast of characters right now in Cleveland. So I'm curious to get your take on Kyle Manzardo and whether you think he can make an impact, not only just in 2023, if he gets the call, but in 2024 and beyond given Cleveland's needs. Yeah, and he's got to get healthy, right? We'll see if they call. My guess is they probably will just call him up at this point. Um, I'm, I should walk that back a little bit, though, because this is Cleveland. They've certainly played their share of service time games with a lot of prospects. I would, um, however, once he gets back, he's healthy, he gets a couple weeks at AAA, I would call him up in September because the idea has to be this guy's in your opening day lineup next year. I like Manzardo. I like him a little bit less now than I did six months ago. Um, he was on my, I think he was 81st on my offseason top 100. He did not move up into my midseason top 60 uh, with obviously there's a lot of graduations ahead of him, but you also add in a lot of the just drafted players to that mix as well, which sort of balances out a bit. But a lot of guys just moved up through just through natural attrition. Manzardo didn't. He's not hit 
particularly well. And then, of course, he got hurt, which does not help matters. He's had particular trouble against left-handed pitching. That is something of a new phenomenon for him, but also something I, I do worry about. I do talk about that a lot. You want but your everyday players have to be able to play every day. They can't be too vulnerable to seam side pitching. Lots of guys have some sort of platoon split. He's got pretty wide this year. Now, four-month platoon split is... Uh, subject to a lot of noise and randomness. So I rather than just saying, oh, I think he's terrible, he can't hit lefties. I'm just saying this is something to keep an eye on. And it might be something that now oh, he's with Cleveland, they need to make sure that he's continuing to work on because that is the number one thing I think that would keep him from becoming an everyday player. What he does against right-handers, the core skill set, the swing, the pitch recognition, all of that points towards an everyday player and probably pretty soon. So that left-handed issue is the one thing I would be looking at, but not a reason to avoid calling him up this year or at the beginning of next year. Yeah, I just think the door is wide open once he's healthy again. Looking at the rotation without Aaron Savale, which seemed fine if Shane Bieber was healthy, and maybe this is, again, more of a long-term play than a short-term play, it's Bybee, it's Gavin Williams, it's Logan Allen. We've talked about those guys a lot this season. Cal mm-hmm. Quantrill's on the IL right now. They added Noah Syndergaard in that small trade with the Dodgers, probably just trying to keep the young starters fresh for the postseason if they get there. Uh, Xavier mm-hmm. Curry's getting chances right now. Do you think they still have enough pitching left over to hang around in the AL Central? No, actually, I, I don't think so. I think, right, no Bieber, no Savali, other than Tanner... Bibby, I have lots of questions about the guys in that currently in that rotation. Even someone like Gavin Williams, who I think has a lot of potential, certainly he is, you know, pretty vulnerable to left-handed hitting. Uh, more platoon split issues. He lives and dies by his fastball, which is elite, but maybe not enough. And certainly, if you go into the postseason, that's going to be, I think, even more of an issue. So, yeah, I got a lot of questions, certainly, and. Um, could they? Of course, they could win the division. And I mean, a team can get into the postseason and surprise us. The 06 Cardinals being the best example. We, I think everybody was laughing at their rotation heading into that postseason. And yet, they ended up winning the whole winning the World Series. So, could Cleveland do that? Sure. It's just not the way to bet. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Going the other way, Aaron Savale in Tampa Bay gives them a much needed addition to that rotation because of all the injuries they have piled up over the course of this season, most specifically Drew Rasmussen and Jeffrey Springs with Shane Boz already down. So now you go McClanahan, Glasnell, Eflin, Savale, Savale, Eflin in some order. It looks a lot better. I wonder if we'll also see 
the usual adjustments for Savale in Tampa Bay. If they'll mess with the pitch mix or change the shape of something and just and try and, and get a little bit more out of him. Because when he's been really good in Cleveland, he's shown occasional flashes of missing more bats. But it's been injuries and it's been even some performance inconsistencies throughout his time there. So I'm wondering just how much they're going to be able to possibly change him now that he's with the Rays. Yeah, and it's, right, there's an argument maybe Cleveland did sell high on him, right? He's healthy and effective, as effective as he's ever been before. So that's you know, good for them for doing so. I like the fit there in Tampa. I think he's really going to benefit also by playing in front of one of the best defensive units anywhere in baseball. Um, that'll certainly help him play up, help his stuff play up. So, yeah, I see a lot of... Uh, reasons to be optimistic about Savali. And as you said, I mean, they just had such a glaring need for another arm. Just they've been, they've been hit so hard by the injury bug and also um, have, have not gotten the production they would have expected out of Taj Bradley, who looked like he'd be ready to contribute in the majors. And he's had a few starts where you've seen it, but he's been nowhere near consistent enough to be, what is he nominally their number three starter at this point when you consider who's gotten hurt and the innings he's been asked to handle uh, adding anyone who is even just league average was a big improvement. And I think Savali's got a chance to be more than that. And right now they're also stretching out Zach Littell, who was working more as like a bulk guy opener. He just went five last time out against the Astros. So that might be another ongoing project for the Rays, depending on what they do with Taj Bradley. I also noticed they got a couple off days in the schedule. I think Thursday, and Monday off days. So when you have a younger guy like Bradley, who you're trying to nurse in terms of overall workload, and you've got all these other options that can go in the bullpen that you can send up and down, you're going to take advantage of that if you're Tampa Bay. So I don't know if we've seen the the last of Taj for 2023, even though he was recently sent back to AAA Durham. Uh, were you surprised the Rays didn't make any other major adjustments to this group of position players at the deadline? I mean, Savali is a good get and an important one, but it felt like probably a B sort of grade on their deadline instead of an A, but most teams probably finished more in the B to C range this year because there wasn't as much movement as people hoped for. I wouldn't, I, I don't think I would have given anyone an A. Would you? Like I did a, you know, who did well, who didn't do well. And honestly, I could have made it the second category twice as long as the first category. Did anybody really have a knock it out of the park deadline? I think you could point to the Mets and say they did what they had to do. And I think you point, you know what? The Rangers might get the A or the A minus. I might give them an A, right? Good for the I Rangers. I think I would. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Why, why wouldn't you? And it wasn't just Scherzer. They it was Jordan Montgomery it. and Stratton. Yep. They got Chapman yep. previously. I mean, they added four pitchers to a group that yeah. has had a lot of injuries too. So on, on top of already losing to Grom, you looked at the group of pitchers they put together going back to the times they signed a lot of these guys and said between Heaney, Evaldi, John Gray, those are scary injury histories. So you're always worried about losing starters when you lean as much into risk as they did. I think they did a great job uh, addressing those those areas of need. And I think as far as like other things they could have done, they even got a backup catcher. They added Austin Hedges because they had Jonah Heim go down with a wrist injury. Like That yes, was a, right. a late surprise for them. So they, they took care of that. You could argue that maybe one more bat would have helped, but they certainly don't need it. They they score plenty of runs as they're currently constructed, and they're going to yeah. get Corey Seager back from the IL in the next few weeks, too. Yeah, I don't know what else I would have asked them to do or thought even as a Rangers fan that I would have wanted them to do. 
So I'm curious. I want to get back to what you were saying with the race too. Is there a particular spot you would have liked to have seen them upgrade on the position player side? I think this is the important question to ask when you start handing out grades. Like what was the move that they should have made and didn't make? Mm -hmm. I think when you look at how they've done it so far this year, it's the usual mixing and matching with the semi-regulars. It's getting a lot of mileage mm -hmm. out of Luke Rayleigh and uh, Randy Arena cooled off a little bit in July, but he's still an everyday fixture for them. Paredes has been phenomenal. Wander's mm -hmm. been great. I guess when you look at it, it's like, who who was available? Are you going to upgrade catcher at the trade deadline? Usually no. Yasmani Grandal doesn't make them better behind the plate, right? So I don't know what move they would have left on the table. So I guess that's the best argument for saying the deadline was great. They got the thing they needed the most. One more arm in the bullpen. I, I might make the argument that this year's Rays bullpen is not the the funhouse five or six guys that all do different <laughs> things nightmare to deal with. So maybe that, that feels like picking nits. Cause I think you can look at any and team's bullpen and say, yeah, right? they've been, they've been their good. bullpen's been good. Yeah. It's not a flawed bullpen. It's just not the, the right. a bullpen that you're used to seeing for Tampa Bay. I just could see them saying, hey, our bullpen's been pretty effective. Like we're, we're, we're fine. We're not going to burn prospects to go address the bullpen. If we're going to use a prospect, yeah, you're right. Catcher is the one spot, but who, who was out there? Right. That to me is the problem they ran into is the one spot in the lineup where you could say, yeah, they could, they should do better there. Maybe I'm not thinking of someone. It, just no one comes to mind immediately is that's the guy they should have gone to go get, or so-and-so was available. Obviously that such a player was not traded. Who else could they have gotten? I, I don't know. It's not like recent deadlines where we've seen you know Juan Soto or Trey Turner or impact guys like that go where you could say, well, we'll just move someone over. We'll, we'll make a slight adjustment because we can go get the best available position player. There wasn't a position player of that caliber moved. So I think that's right. part of it with Tampa the Bay. Best, you know, I mean, you know the answer. You've probably seen it. The best position player moved at the deadline? By war? Yeah. Any measure, right? By this year's production? It's Candelario, right? Yeah, it's Jamer Candelario, right? Who, unless I'm forgetting someone, uh, I think it's I think it's Jamer. I, I think it's interesting too because he went to the Cubs, and just two weeks ago, most of us, if we were saying saying buyer or seller for the Cubs, would have said, yeah, probably a seller. And they ended up buying a little bit. They kept Cody Bellinger. They're playing really well right now, so that certainly helps. I look at them and I look at most of the teams in both central divisions and you can start to make a case for like why it'll work. But you can also make an easy case for why it won't work. You know, like they could have made if you look at that team, same question we asked about the Rays. What was your other spot you would have liked to have seen the Cubs upgrade? Because the other challenge in all this, too, for teams that are for fans of teams that are mad that they didn't go out and, and get the Verlander or the Scherzer or the the Giolitos, the, the best available starting pitchers. Two of those three guys had no trade control. And right. it's not with Eduardo Rodriguez. Like if, if, if no trades are a factor, you can't just go get your guy in, in all these cases, too. So that complicates the who's available question in some cases. Oh, absolutely. I um yeah, that's a huge variable that you got to consider is is what was available. We know which players were available that were traded. Sometimes it's tough to know which players were not available, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, um, yeah, I hesitate to go all in on saying, well, they should have gotten this and they should have gotten that unless you see that player went somewhere else, right? Then that's a different story. 
Yeah, I, I just think with the Cubs, I don't have a, a clear and obvious they had to do this. I think they have they have the kind of roster where just a good hitter, if there was one available, would have been fine. But mm-hmm. who was that player? Who did they miss on? I can't really ID the player they missed on. Is it similar for Minnesota? I know a lot of people are disappointed that the Twins being in first place, only having a two-game lead on Cleveland, but looking a lot better on paper than Cleveland said, we're okay. We're fine the way we are. Byron Buxton yep. should be better the rest of the way. Carlos Correa should be better the rest of the way. It's a little bit of a dangerous game to play, but I can actually talk myself into that. And as far as the starting pitching depth goes, you know, I know Dallas Keuchel opted out. Is that AAA for them? He opted out after the deadline. Sonny Gray, Joe Ryan, Pablo Lopez, Kenta Maeda, Bailey Ober. You're not really trading starters away from that group because as we've talked about over the course of the season, they finally have enough depth where if they lose one of those guys, they're not necessarily going to fall apart. So they couldn't afford to trade away a starting pitcher. I, I would ask the same kind of question. What should the Twins have done at this deadline that they didn't do? I mean, I wonder if they just didn't address third base because they say that's going to be Royce Lewis's. I mean, that's the biggest hole I think they've got on the roster that they've decided that they chose not to address at the deadline this year. Also, I I mean, I am sympathetic to Twins fans who say we just didn't do anything and we're two games over 500. Like, we're not that good. Right? That is a perfectly, to me, a perfectly valid assessment to say, hey, we're 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 a 500 team. Obviously, we have some needs somewhere and they declined to address those needs. And I think that is a that would be reason to be a little bit irked, I would say, if you're a Twins fan. Should you be irked if you're a Reds fan, given that you still have a lot of prospects that haven't debuted yet that other teams would be very interested in that? You could have gone out and, and made an impact move in theory. I, I, I think this is one Ben Lively on deadline night, unfortunately, oh, had God. just a miserable outing against well. the Cubs. Yeah, so that's like salt in the wound for Reds fans who are already upset about how the day went. 13 earned runs, four homers allowed, just absolutely wore one. ERA went from a 376 to a 520 in just four innings. So yeah. the needs have been... On the pitching side, I guess the good news is Hunter Green starting to make some progress, getting closer to a return, but you need more than Hunter Green. You can't just rely on getting healthy in this case. I actually feel like of the two teams, the Reds needed to go out and do something more than the Twins did, even though it would have been nice to see both of those teams become more active. Sam Maul, a bullpen addition from the A's, was really the only move the Reds made. Yes, and I wrote, I couldn't believe the Reds chose not to do anything very surprised disappointed they chose not to do anything um particularly thought they could have traded from some of that position player depth that they have to and even if it meant trading a big leaguer like i like spencer steer he's having a really good year could you trade him and go get the starting pitching depth that you really need i hope hunter green comes back and is really effective but you don't know exactly how good he's going to be when he comes back and He's been up and down, and I'm a big Hunter Green fan, but he is not a top 10 pitcher in the National League. Um, you know, Nick Lodolo, you have no idea if he's coming back, what he's going to look like when he comes back. Lively, as you said, wore it the other night. Ashcraft has definitely taken a step back. Andrew Abbott's their most effective, healthy starter right now. So I think there are plenty of arguments, plenty of reasons to argue they should have done something 
even if it meant trading off the major league roster, because they they have a lot of infielders right now. They have some depth that they could from which they could trade. Yeah, and you think about that trade that the Marlins, you know, that they made to get Josh Bell, their need for bats, the Reds would have been among the teams that could have lined up for a pitcher with the Marlins and Steer could have been maybe like a Jake Berger type. Instead of making the deal for Berger, you trade for Spencer Steer. So the Reds could have found something that way, potentially. It wouldn't have been Jake Eater, of course, in the return. But we've talked a lot about the Marlins having guys like Braxton Garrett who could be movable. In uh, It didn't happen. So I was a little surprised the Reds didn't do something. Uh, you mentioned the the Mets. In, and I think the Mets, for me, are, are like another... They're another version of what we saw Cincinnati do a couple years ago when Cincinnati decided to trade and play for the future Mm -hmm. two years ago and go for the quick rebuild. There was an argument, especially being in the NL Central, you could say, well, they know they could run it back with this core again and maybe make the playoffs. And all you got to do is get there and good things can happen. The Mets, it seemed like, saw the writing on the wall that running it back and keeping Scherzer and Verlander and trying to keep adding more and more to the roster, especially being in the upper bounds of the luxury tax penalties that wasn't going to be sustainable for them. So in terms of the talent they got back across all of the trades, how did you feel they did given the financial complications of the trades they were making? Right. Obviously they put a ton of money into those deals. Understandably. Like I think they did the right thing. You got and you, You've got that kind of money. You go out and you buy yourself some prospects. You got to get yourself better returns, um, the best possible prospect return to um, maximize the value of these guys you were trading away. So I thought they did pretty well. Like if I was going to say any seller did a really good job, whether that's a B plus or an A minus, I don't really care that much, but they did a great job. Um, I think they did exactly the things that they had to do uh, at this particular, at this trade deadline, given where the major league club is. Um, Yeah, I think they did exactly. Mets fans should be pleased. There were individual spots where it's like, "Eh, I wish they gotten a little more there. I wish they gotten a little bit more there. It's fine. They did great. I'm Mets fans should be very, very pleased with the, with the team's actions, with the fact that Steve Cohen really understands what a sunk cost is also. What time? What kind of player do you expect Drew Gilbert to be in the long run? He's at Double A right now. I know he's had an injury this year, but as far as his offensive ceiling, what do you think he brings? I think he's got a chance to. If everything works, you got a guy who's going to hit for average, who's got maybe some doubles power. Hopefully, draws enough walks to have a good approach, um, and really plays the hell out of center field. Um, with an with an outstanding arm as well, um, yeah. Again, that's that's the hope, but I also see risk. Right, he has moved up to Double A and started to swing and miss a whole lot more, and he's had issues with left handed pitching as well. Um, you know, some of this was he got off to a ridiculous early start in Asheville, where everybody hits, and I think a lot of people got too excited just from scouting the proverbial stat line. And as a result, people thought he was just, he's not that type of player, right? It's just a matter of setting your expectations. He's a good player. I like Drew Gilbert. I don't think he's a superstar. I'd be surprised if he turned into a superstar. The Clifford kid they got, that guy might have some superstar upside, actually. That's, he's very, very interesting. 
so more than a throw-in as far as being a second oh, player absolutely. in the deal because I, I feel yeah. like a lot of the conversation is around Gilbert since he was the you know, first round draft pick and Clifford could be a little overlooked. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Also curious to get your thoughts on Luis Angel Acuna. They got in the Scherzer deal. How much of, of the hype around Acuna is the function of it says Acuna on the back of his Jersey. He's, he's, he's Ronald's brother. He's, he's gotta be good. Right. I mean, the, right. is there <laughs> any of that happening with him where there's unfair expectations on him because his brother is a superstar or do you think Luis Angel Acuna is a legitimate impact big leaguer in the long run? And, you know, he's, he's going to going to actually help this Mets team. Maybe, maybe as soon as next year, but at mm-hmm. least by 2025, I think since he's playing at double a already as a 21 year old. Yeah, he's a really good player. It's unfortunate that he has, right, that he has that name and maybe people are going to think he's a player that he's not. Um, you know, that's certainly not on him, right? That's not his fault. Um, and we shouldn't be judging him by that particular standard um, when, in fact, yeah, as it turns out, he's a pretty good player in his own right. Um, so, yeah, I am very much, uh, uh, I believe that he is a good player without his brother's ceiling but when i you know sort of emphasize yeah i believe this guy is a good player i'm also saying hey i think this guy has got a chance to be pretty solid big league regular 
it depends, especially I think on what you believe his ultimate position to be. Um, and whether that, uh, you know, does he stay at shortstop? If he's a long-term shortstop, I've heard a lot of disagreements. Does he stay at shortstop? Does he end up in center field? Does he end up at second base? That sort of affects what the ceiling is. I, I do. I did have a little bit of a feeling. I sort of wish that the Mets had gone for a higher ceiling guy, just given who they are. You've got to be a really good player usually to play every day for the Mets. And so to me, that was the only complaint that I had. But then they did turn around, I think, go for a little bit of ceiling with Clifford. And you could argue the Vargas kid that they got in the Robertson deal, also another ceiling guy. So I don't want to overemphasize that point because, again, I think that they I do think they actually had a very good deadline. Yeah, Marco Vargas far, far away from the big leagues, but could be sure. one of those players you look back at and say, well, they got him in the David Robertson deal like at the, mm-hmm. the end of Robertson's career. That was a really nice return. And where do you think Acuna fits best defensively? And some of that might just be up to the other pieces on the depth chart. But if, if you had a blank slate, where would you want to play him? Shortstop, right? That to me, that is the whole thing. You are just sticking him at shortstop. Um, yeah, wind him up and let him go and just say, you you got to play yourself off of shortstop for us to change our opinion. Um, to me, it's very much a, I believe you're a shortstop until sort of proven otherwise. Um, yeah, I'm a big advocate of just like, again, let those guys just stay at those positions and see how um, maybe they surprise you. Maybe they learn something or maybe the game speeds up on them and ultimately they end up in a situation where they, yep, nope, that turns out we were wrong. This guy's got to go play somewhere else. It happens. So to me, that is um, very much a, I think he's got a chance to play shortstop. I think he's athletic enough. You're going to have to put him out there and see what it looks like. So what are the priorities for the Mets over these final two months? Like which players do they have to learn the most about? When I look at their depth chart, I think, you got to play Mark Vientos now. You you just have to see where he fits defensively, how much swing and miss there's going to be. Like figure out if he's part of your core because the, some of the core is, is very clear. Francisco Alvarez yep. having a nice rookie year, just being lost in this season, being a lost season for the Mets. You got mm-hmm. one more year of Pete Alonso before an extension. You've got Lindor signed through 2031. Although I will say, having now seen Scherzer and Verlander get traded and seeing Steve Cohen's willingness to eat money, at some point during that deal, Francisco Lindor could get traded. Like that's that's For very sure. much on the table, even though it's the kind of trade that doesn't usually happen. Brett Beatty, you know, hasn't been great yet, but I think there's still reasons to like his bat in the long term. So who else oh, are you yeah. trying to learn something about with the playing time you've got over these final two months? I think maybe there's more questions on the pitching side where the young pitching isn't necessarily even there yet. It's not even in the org yet. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure who you mentioned the guys I was going to mention, actually. I'm just looking up and down their roster and there are players I like in the system, but who, you know, they're not calling Kevin Parada up, for example. Um, Ronnie Mauricio, you want to get him to the big leagues for a couple months here at the end of the season? Would they be willing? You know, the question I have on him is, would they be willing? You know, Jeff McNeil has had a hugely disappointing season. He's 31. It's not a skill set that you don't necessarily expect to age all that well. Like, you know, could, would they be willing to do something there to, um, you know, would they be willing to bench him some here or there with the intention of trying Mauricio there? Like you want to give Mauricio time at a couple of different spots and see what it looks like. Yeah. He's the one guy, you know, that's a, that's a, a good one. 
he's the guy where, yeah, they should be looking at bringing him up just to give it a look, right? To recognize oh, this guy should be a part of our club somewhere next year. Let's see, first of all, see what he does against major league pitching because he's very, very aggressive. Um, you know, and is that too much of a challenge for him? And then also try him at a couple of different positions and see where he might fit for you. Now, if you were running a different team, would you be interested in Jeff McNeil with three more years on that contract? It was a four mm-hmm. for 50 that started up this year. So it's a 12 and a half million for each of the next three seasons. You're sort of betting on a bounce back, maybe not all the way to 2022, but by Fangraph's war, Jeff McNeil was almost a six win player a year ago. Yeah. Usually guys that reach that level don't crash this hard, or they at least have a few more productive seasons ahead of them. Maybe the Mets aren't interested in moving him, but what do you think the next year or two might hold for McNeil coming off this really disappointing 2023? Yeah, I mean, look, this is... McNeil's value has always been tied up in his batting average more than absolutely anything else. And so, yeah, that's a huge, um, I would say a huge concern for the Mets going forward. Like it's not somebody I think you want to invest in long-term. I think this is somebody you really want to be looking at going forward to um, replace ultimately to upgrade. He'd be a nice bench piece. I do think there are a lot of clubs. He would have been a good candidate to try trading. He would have been a really nice multi-position. He can play second. You can stick him in a corner outfield spot uh, a guy to really, like I said, move maybe move around, useful bat off the bench. You know, I don't know. Maybe they never explored it. Maybe they view him as a core player going forward, um, but they never gave themselves that that chance to potentially do that. Taking a look here at a few other teams that were pretty active at the deadline. We always expect the the Mariners to do something. That's just Jerry Depoto. It's what he does. Given their their position in the AL West, the overall AL playoff picture, I think their deadline makes sense. Uh, I'm curious what you think about Dominic Canzone, because as an outfielder, first baseman, he was pretty blocked in Arizona. It seems like he's at least got a path to playing time now in Seattle. Do you think he's going to hit enough to stick at least on the big side of platoon? Yes. Um, I am a... Uh... I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan. I don't want to say I'm a believer that probably overstates the case, but I am definitely a big fan um, and think that he deserves a chance to play every day. I think at worst, you've got a really good fourth outfielder, but I think he has shown enough at this point that um, to consider talk, to consider him as a potential everyday player. And I thought that was a really shrewd, if smaller pickup for Seattle. I mean, I give them, quite a bit of credit for uh, doing what they did for deciding ultimately, yep, we're going to, we're going to go all in, even though it is, um, you know, even though this was a season where really, we really expected that we were going to go make the playoffs. And, you know, that obviously that didn't work out. Paul Seawell's a very good reliever and having him for one more year gives the Diamondbacks a boost in that bullpen. I know Seawall's pretty popular in that Seattle fan base too. So it always hurts to mm-hmm. lose a player like that, but that organization does a good job finding and acquiring very good relievers. So it's mm-hmm. trading from a strength, getting something that can help you a little bit later. Um, it seemed like a pretty solid deadline overall for the Mariners. Again, just based on, on where they, where they're at. I'm curious what you think about uh, Jack Flaherty going to Baltimore. I think Orioles fans were getting really impatient as the deadline approached on Tuesday, and we found out very late Jack Flaherty is the addition to the rotation. They previously made that trade for Shintaro Fujinami for some bullpen depth. 
did the Orioles do enough? And their window probably opened a little faster than people expected it to. And they should be very good for a long time with the talent they have in the organization. But do you think we're going to look back at this deadline and say it was a missed opportunity because they had the pieces to go out and get almost anybody? Even even the players that didn't end up getting moved would seemingly have been on the table given what the Orioles had to offer. I could go both ways. I mean, I've said for a while, I think that the Orioles really need to use all this position player depth to go get themselves a you know a frontline starter or close to it and um that didn't who was the guy right who was who was available who was clearly available who was that guy and maybe okay maybe they just need to do that on um maybe they need to do that uh, in this offseason instead mm-hmm. when are there are going to be more players available and there will be maybe maybe we're more likely to get a frontline starter available in trade at that point but the orioles have multiple position players who are blocked. They just don't have enough room for all their infield and outfield prospects. And they do have another catching prospect, Sammy Vasayo, who's in low A, not blocked, but Adley Rutschman is the catcher for the near future, maybe the distant future. So does that make Vasayo more available? Somebody you discuss if it gets you a frontline starter, they're just, they're going to have to do this at some point. That said, who was traded, right? Who was the guy who was traded, who had, who was that type of starter you know, you could argue for Scherzer or Verlander, much older, obviously still a large financial commitment for the teams that acquired them. Chevalier has more than, it's more than a rental, but we discussed sort of his potential flaws or question marks. Am I forgetting someone? Everyone else was a rental. And I think it's pretty clear the Orioles decided if we're going to do a rental, we're not giving up our top, top prospects. And they didn't in the Flaherty deal. They sent three guys, but I don't think any of them was really in the Orioles top 10 at this point. Yeah, I think the name a lot of people tried to link to the Orioles was Dylan Cease because he was a starter with control. He didn't get moved to anybody else. It's not like like the Orioles lost the Dylan Cease sweepstakes to someone else. Yeah, he should have been also. But who knows? Maybe they just didn't get an offer they liked. But I definitely look at the White Sox and think, hey, probably should have traded that guy, right? I always say that I use this, this cliche all the time. In for a penny, in for a pound, right? Are you selling? Sell. Yeah. Right? There's no Choose a direction. half selling. Right. You cannot go halfway. I could say the same thing about the Cardinals, right? Should they have traded Nolan Arenado? Should they have explored it? It's That's always the better way to say it, right? They should have traded this guy. We don't know. Maybe nobody offered anything, right? Here's a bag of used baseballs and a jockstrap nobody's put through the wash yet. Like that's okay, fine. Then you say no. The problem I had with the Cardinals was that John Mozeliak went to the, went publicly and said, we're not trading Arenado, period. <laughs> and that sounds to me like you said, I don't know, but it sounds to me like what he's saying is we're not even open to taking offers. That's where I draw the line. I feel like you should kind of always be open for business, even if you're a buyer, even if you're a contender. Mm-hmm. Hey, you want to call and do something stupid? You want to offer me You know what the Dave Stewart and the Diamondbacks offered for Shelby Miller, right? That, okay, yeah, sure, sure. I'll take that packet. I'll take, right? If you want to give me you know, 120 cents on the dollar. Sure. I'm open to it. Let someone overpay you. And it seems like in the Arenado case, they probably didn't. And I don't know about Cease, but it does make me wonder. All they did was trade rentals. Actually, that's not true. They trade Jake Berger and he was not a rental. And I like that. It's probably my favorite of all their moves, even though there's a good chance it doesn't work out. But I like the thinking. I really like the philosophy behind that. 
What do you think about the Cardinals overall haul? I mean, they made multiple trades. Uh, Jordan Hicks went to Toronto, uh, made the big trade with the Rangers, sending Jordan Montgomery and Chris Stratton there. I, I think Takoa Roby's really interesting of all the players mm-hmm. that got back, but the overall collection of talent, does it does it enable the Cardinals with whatever adjustments they also make this offseason? I think you could see one of the outfielders get traded during the winter. That wouldn't be a surprise. Mm-hmm. You could see someone on the infield get moved. You could see Wilson Contreras get moved, potentially. There's all sorts of things that can happen with this team between now and opening day next year. Did they do enough to bolster some of the organizational weaknesses on the pitching front? Because that's the problem, right? You're looking at this team and you're saying, who's pitching for them next yeah. year? Who's in this rotation? We're assuming Adam Wainwright's going to retire, so you're down to what, Michaelis, Steven Matz. You're probably going to have to throw Matthew Libertor out there every fifth day. You're probably going to get two starters in free agency or you have to promote somebody. Uh, yeah, well, I guess Gordon Graceffo, I would guess Gordon Graceffo and or Mike McGreevy would end up at least competing for rotation spots. They might be ahead of Liberator at this point. Liberator has not made the adjustment that he needs to make. The guys are going to hit that fastball. It's frankly, it's too straight. I think the delivery is so clean. They see it well. Okay, it's not working. Right? That's just that's just it, right? You just this hitters have told you this is not working. It is now on you and the team, obviously, to make that adjustment. But I would slide him down my my depth chart in terms of my expectation for next year's um, next year's rotation. To your question about their haul, it's a little disappointing, and I understand nobody blew the doors off. What do we have? One guy from my entire top sixty get traded this trade deadline. It wasn't that kind of deadline. They did fine. Right. They did. That's your grade B deadline, like we were talking about. They did fine. That Montgomery deal is the one that I think is the most interesting and has the chance to really move the needle. Thomas Sajese has been, he just keeps getting better. And I may still be underestimating him, even as I think I've moved him up on, on, my rankings, my internal estimations. And I've always liked to call Roby. It's just a matter of staying healthy. Now you should be back soon. So hopefully we have to see him pitch a little bit before the end of the season for the Cardinals, see how far away he is. Cause he's really athletic. It's pretty good stuff. Maybe trending towards really, really good stuff. They don't have a lot of that in the system. A guy who has a starter look and a starter delivery with multiple weapons, Graceffo, and then, like McGreevy's a starter, but he doesn't have huge upside. Libertori should be a starter, but that fastball is just not going to play. So who else is in the system who has all that? Yeah, Roby, a healthy Roby is pretty high up there and probably impacts the major league club in the second half of next year. Yeah, and I think the the name that Cardinals fans are really interested to hear about is Tink Hens. He's pitching at double A already. He's made four starts yeah. there. How quickly do you want to move him? They They need to change their philosophy Pitching-wise, as an organization, the types of pitchers they've been throwing out there are a problem. You need to miss more bats than the Cardinals miss if you're going to have consistent success. Tink Hentz has that kind of ceiling. We're talking about a guy right now who's thrown 61 and two-thirds innings this year between high A and double A. So even if you want to factor him into their plans for some part of 2024, you're almost looking at like a... Yuri Perez sort of how do we mm-hmm. manage the inning sort of situation if you decide to move him aggressively? Do you think moving him aggressively makes sense based on his skills and their organizational needs? I would actually like to see them just kind of take the training wheels off a bit. He actually, on July 21st, he threw 82 pitches in a game, which I believe is his professional high. Now, glass half full, right? Since he they bumped him up to 
double A. He has thrown 75 or more pitches in all four starts. He had only thrown 70 pitches once all season. I don't think he even did it last year. Uh, he has gone five full innings, retired 15, or at least gotten 15 outs every one of his four outings since he got to double A and did it also in his penultimate start in high A. So it does seem like they are trending towards him being a great, you know, you make developing him as a real starter. I was correct. He did not throw more than 60 pitches in any outing last year. Now, hence is he missed all of 21 with injury, never had surgery, but he was hurt. He is slight and his arm is super fast. I understand the fear about him getting hurt. However, boy, do they really have the this guy restricted, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Like, there is a line beyond which he would be working fatigued. I don't think he's hit that. Certainly him throwing 50 pitches in an outing, like that's he's he seems to be fine. All indications, velocity stuff, results are he's he's fine. I don't know what the number is. They've just really held him back. And I do hope as this season progresses, I'll see pitches once a week, right? Just let it could could he could he throw 90 pitches? Could we get maybe get there? Try it sometime. Like, I don't think that's gonna be the thing that makes his arm fall off. If they were using him more frequently, or if they were working him much, much deeper into games, but he's so good, he throws enough strikes, he gets his five innings and it's 75 to 80 pitches. And that's fine. But you're not trying to make a five and dive starter, not a guy like this. He's way too good to just relegate him to five and dive status. Yeah, I, I think I can understand the importance of trying to keep him healthy, given what you need in the organization, but you do probably have to push him more than he's been pushed so far. And maybe that's what this mm-hmm. final two months will be, right? Maybe between now and the season, they're going to let him continue to work 80 plus pitches consistently. And to answer your question too, like, where is he? I just think because of everything we just discussed, he's further off. He's the best pitching prospect in the system, but he's got four starts in double A right now and hasn't gone over five, five innings and 82 pitches. He's never got recorded a 16th out in any outing in pro ball. So is that guy really going to be in the rotation next year? Maybe he comes up and he's in the bullpen. If they do like an old school, I always talk the Earl Weaver philosophy, break your gut, break your starters in as long relievers. They want to do that. Absolutely. I will sign my name and endorse that right now. Not many teams do that. And so I have a feeling he will be in AAA still at this time next year. And they'll just be keep gradually, gradually building him up. I mean, I can't, uh, I will say if you're the Cardinals, you say, look, we kept the guy healthy for almost two full years now after he missed essentially all of 21. And he was a 17 year old when they signed him in the 2020 draft. So, you know, they could argue the proof is in the pudding. He has not gotten hurt yet. I just, he, he could, he could probably work a little more. Right. I like my starters to go six innings. I don't even think that's that old school. I, I, I hope he gets the chance to do that a couple of times before the year is out. You think we'll see Mason win before the end of this season? I think so. Right? What do you think? It just With seems the like they just gone, set it yeah. up now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, they don't have an excuse anymore. Yeah. They don't have yeah, an excuse. Ain't... They can do it at a time where they don't burn off his rookie of the year eligibility so they can you know, make sure yeah. they have a shot to get the compensation next year. Yeah, so sure. I think that's exactly what they're going to do. They're, they're going to wait until was it mid, late August, bring him up, and it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to see what he can do. And then they're yeah, going like, to be ca- plus one on the infield. That's probably mm-hmm. going to lead them to an offseason trade. Yes. And I say, you know, he'll be exciting too, right? That is a, hang on guys. We're, we're still trying, right? We're not entering a five-year rebuild here. Here is one of our prospects already, an elite defensive player. 
you've all seen it. If you follow baseball at all, you've probably seen this guy throw. He's he might have a better throwing arm than Ellie De La Cruz, which is certainly saying something. And he is very fast and really twitchy. And I think he's going to be a plus plus defender at shortstop. And he does some things at the plate where you know probably be a lot of ups and downs. It might be a couple of years of growth before he gets to his ceiling. But I mean, this guy's he's that 2020 draft class man, Jordan Walker, Mason Wynn, Tink Hens, Alec Burleson. And Ian Bedell has come back from Tommy John surgery. My understanding is he's thrown as well as ever and as hard as ever. Like that is, I cannot stop thinking about how incredible that Cardinals draft class was in a year where everything went to hell. They might have had the, a draft class for the ages. Yeah, and it, you're right. It might speed up this. It might be one down year in St. Louis before they're back and contending for division titles again because there's still a good core that those young players are kind of being added into here. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really impressive draft class. Anything else that caught your eye from this deadline that we haven't talked about on this show? I mean, the White Sox got a lot of players back. We talked about Eater earlier. We talked about the players they got in the Giolito trade last week. So I don't know if there's a whole lot more there. I like they took the flyer on Luis Patino. Like, why? Why not? Just see if you can why not? do something different. Part yeah. of the reason that the Rays gave up on him, I think, Keith, is that this is his last year with options. They love yeah. having guys with options. If they couldn't fix him by now, you know, why, why would they think they could do it with another offseason? Um, yeah. I thought that was just a nice kind of under-the-radar sort of move that the White Sox made. But anything else that caught your eye from this deadline? Um, just two, just uh, two real quick notes i mean just the padres one the padres saying now yeah, we're we're still we're still buying right they're what are they one or two games under 500 but they've outscored their opponents this team should be way better if you were just to close your eyes on the ignore the standings and and simply look at who's on this roster you'd bet on them being much better the last two months of the season i like that they chose not to sell i like that they added a little bit around the margins and i also thought the ryan weathers trade was really interesting like one i think I still kind of like Weathers, maybe just getting him away from San Diego where he's had so much trouble will help, whether it's different voices. Like I'm I'm really shocked at how bad Weathers has been, particularly how few bats he's missing. This is not a guy who's who lacks stuff. Um, he could use help, certainly, but he's been a huge disappointment relative to where he was drafted, prospect expectations, the, just the sheer quality of his two main pitches. So good for Miami for picking him up. They also, Padres also picked up Sean Reynolds, a 6'8", former infielder who is now on the mound and has been up to 99, and it has got to be a really uncomfortable at-bat for right-handed batters for 6'8", coming right down the mound at you. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if he ended up getting to the big leagues this year and the Padres find ways to use him out of the pen. That was pretty interesting. They picked up him and Garrett Cooper, just gives them a platoon mate at first base or DH, which I I do think absolutely helps them. Reynolds was the interesting guy, but they gave a pretty good, you know, ex prospect in Weathers to get him. So not a high profile deal, but a fun one. One I think we'll we'll find ourselves talking about for a little bit in the future. Yeah, I just think they they were so committed to what they had done these past two seasons, really, that it mm-hmm. didn't make sense to me to blow it up now. It was like, well, let's just see, let's just run this to the end, and if we have to tear it apart in the off season, fine. Maybe you got to do some some deals that are unexpected. In December, but why? Why do that on August first? There were rumors that Blake Snell could have been moved; he's still there. There were rumors that Josh Hader could have been moved; he's still there. They added one more arm to the bullpen with Barlow. Maybe they did fix the DH problem by getting Choi and Cooper in there. A little more depth now in that lineup. 
And they've got a few guys. I mean, for for the things that have gone wrong for them this year, Hassan Kim has been fantastic. Yeah, it goes back to that? last year too, but added power. This is the best version of him that we've seen so far in the big leagues in year three. There's power, there's speed, there's good OBP skills. Like across the board, he's been excellent. Yes, this is nothing like the player that I think most people thought the Padres were getting. You know, a slap and run with really, really good defense, but probably going to swing and miss a lot, not going to have any power at all. Different guy. Good for him. Right. It's actually, it gives me a lot of hope also to see players come over from NPB and KBO and change hitters. I'm thinking particularly and make big changes. Cause I think a lot, we had a period where not all certainly, but many hitters came over and tried to carry the same approach that they'd used there. And I'm referring both to swing and, and sort of swing, swing mechanics and swing decisions. When I say approach in this context and Guys like Kosuke Fukudome comes to mind as a guy who just couldn't really ever make the adjustment. Now we've seen a bunch of guys do that. Shohei Otani was a big swing and miss guy. He first came over. I think his first year at the Angels, he punched out 30% of the time, maybe a little bit more. And he made some changes to his swing. And we've seen uh, Yoshida with the Red Sox certainly beat expectations um, where, yeah, a lot of these guys are, are coming over from those two main professional, I, was, I always refer to them as major leagues. And are making adjustments, whether it's right away or within a year or two, and becoming, like you said, the best versions of themselves, it's pretty exciting. And maybe it means we'll see more of a flow of players going back and forth, I hope, because I think that's good for the game globally as well. And I know with, with the Padres, too, just closing the book on them, I mean, they're two below 500 entering play on Wednesday. Fangraphs has the playoff odds just under 40%. I look at the Padres and I look at the Giants. I look at the Padres, look at the Giants, and I say, "How are they not flipped? They should be flipped." Yep. Who, who are you betting on there? Yep, I would always bet on the Padres, which is probably yeah. why casinos and hotels in Vegas are enormous. <laughs> <laughs> it's because people like me keep throwing money at teams like the Padres. Yeah. That's what it is. That's how. Yep. That's how they do it, Keith. We are going to go on our way out the door. A reminder: you can read everything on the Athletic for just two dollars a month by going to theathletic.com. Slash baseball show. You can find Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. That's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Baseball Show. We are back with you on Friday. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.